0: You are now listening to the February 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have Christian Ease 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace, and begin our program with Christian Ease 101.
1: Hello everyone. My name is Don Chung and I'll be hosting Christianese 101. There might have been times where you were asked at church, Have you received baptism? The style of baptism varies between each church. However, commonly it involves water and baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is used with baptism. It's called immersion. Baptism and immersion both are translated from a Greek word baptisma. Baptisma derived from a Greek word baptizo. Baptizo means to immerse, to submerge, to dip. That is why baptism means to dip in water, to submerge. Aren't you curious then? Why not just use one word to describe it? That is because over the decades, the method of baptism changed according to each denomination. It is called immersion if the whole body is dunked under water. If the water is poured or over the hands to put on the head, then it is called baptism. Of course, the method and the title of the ceremony is important, but the most important thing is the meaning of baptism. What is baptism? why should we get baptized? Romans chapter 6 verse 3-4 to describes the meaning of baptism clearly. Apostle Paul compared baptism to Christ's death, barrier, and resurrection. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Just like it says in Romans, the ceremony of baptism, it symbolizes dying with Jesus Christ when we are submerged in water, bearing and getting rid of our old sinful self. Then, what does it mean to come out of the water after you're immersed? Can you guess? That's right. Just like the resurrection of Jesus, we too are reborn through God's life and born again as His children. Therefore, we can be the heirs of His kingdom and be reunited with Christ. The decision to die with Christ and to be reborn with Christ is what people go through when they begin their Christian faith. That is the reason why not everyone can receive baptism. To be baptized, It is necessary to be equipped with these three inner mindsets. First is repentance. Do you guys remember discussing about repentance last week? To recap, it means turning away from sin and walking towards God. It is the first step to becoming a Christian. Second is committing yourself to the Lord, putting down all of the selfish lives giving all authority to God and fully trusting and following His guidance and decisions. Third is confession of faith. Confession is also a necessary condition before receiving baptism. The one who confesses the belief of our Creator and Jesus Christ as Savior, forgiveness of our sins, and eternal life in front of the congregation can be baptized. However, Being true to oneself is more important than these formalities. There is no point of receiving baptism if you continue to live your old life. I hope that you guys can truly realize the meaning of baptism, the decision that I died with Christ and born again with Christ. Goodbye!
0: Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program May contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity
1: Pastor Dustin Daniels.
2: We have been discussing unhealthy thoughts in our series titled The Sex Spiral Forgiven and Free from Pornography. Over the past two days, we have learned the four false belief statements, these these lies that we tell ourselves. Uh, Number one, that I am a bad and unworthy person. Number two, that no one will love me as I am. Number three, that my needs are never going to be met if I have to depend on other people. And number four, sex is my most important need. Now, yesterday, we also learned that there are four general categories of what's called our shame story, strong person, weak person, there's the wounded person, and the godly person. Now, I'm guessing that you saw yourself in in one or maybe two of these categories and how these shame stories can fluctuate depending on where you are and who you're talking to. Now, this is the cool thing. Learning to understand the power of our, our false belief statements that we tell ourselves, these lies that that run in the back of our head like a tape, an old tape that continues to play. When those are uh, combined with our shame story, the light starts to go on, man. This is like this huge revelation. It's a giant step forward in this journey towards purity because you can start to understand where you are inside the sex spiral. And once you know where you are, then you can learn how to exit. So this is when we begin to really experience the weight of our shame falling off of us. I mean, these chains have, have bound us up for too long, right? I mean, they begin to snap one by one. When we start to realize these things, and once again, we start small, we're walking slow in this, and it's one moment, one situation, one temptation, one trigger at a time. Why? Well, because the truth of who you really are is more powerful than the lies that, you've, that have really held you down. In this podcast, we're going to learn how to be encouraged in this journey towards purity Uh, We're going to look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, because this is not a journey of perfection. (laughs) Let me tell you, uh, it's not about being perfect, and we need all the encouragement we can get. And we're going to look at that text, and it's going to rock your world. It's it's so cool. Secondly, we're going to discuss this life-changing statement that I give you in the lesson itself. So let's get started. This is part three of three for Unhealthy Thoughts. My shame story drives me to the point of giving myself permission to act out in sin. So the question is, how do we break free from our shame story? The good news is that Jesus Christ already did that for us. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12, verses one and two. If you are a highlighter or underliner, or writer in your Bible, this is where the focus is on how to exit the spiral. Everybody there? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you guys to picture in your mind a great coliseum. It's the Olympics. And you are in the Olympics. You're running the race. And you notice that there are observers in the stands. And they, they're just not... Any kind of observers, they're spiritual observers. The text says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So everywhere you look as you're getting ready to race, you see people smiling and waving and clapping, and they're encouraging you. The patriarchs of our faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Prophets like Moses, Elijah, and Jeremiah the apostles, Peter, James, John, Paul, martyrs, Stephen, Polycarp, preachers like Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon. These guys are all in the stands, man, and they're they're clapping for you. And then there's your your family members, your friends. They're encouraging you as you start this race. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That term there lay aside it's this idea of taking off your warm-up outfit. Anything that's going to slow you down, it's, it's this radical stripping off of everything before the race because that was the Greek custom in, in the day. But see, it's not just physical weight. It's spiritual weight. Notice that we also are to strip off any sin that easily entangles us. Sensuality certainly is our Achilles heel tonight. So this image is extreme. If we are to finish well in faith, we must strip our souls naked of every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So now that you've radically stripped everything off, you got one thing to do. That's run. Run like a madman, right? See, we each have our own race. You can't run mine, I can't run yours. But God will allow you to finish your specific race and me mine. Flip over to 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he says, he's at the end of his life and he says, you know what, I've fought the good fight and I've finished this race and I've remained faithful and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness which simply means that he did things God's way, the right way. Uh, The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So the secret, guys, is to run this race with endurance. It's don't ever, 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 ever give up. No matter how how crappy or bad your day is, don't ever give up. The psalmist writes that the mercies of God are new every single morning. Man, is that so true. So back to Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It's very interesting here how the writer of Hebrews he wrote looking to Jesus. He didn't write looking to Christ and he didn't didn't write looking to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus as the Apostle Paul likes to write. He says looking to Jesus. Here we're reminded to focus on Jesus, which means his humanity, to get our eyes off ourselves and our problems and get them back on Jesus because Jesus perfected living by faith in his humanity. He perfected that. He he showed us how to live by faith. So looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and he despised the shame. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Look at the attitude of Jesus there. We can't fathom the, the physical pain, let alone the spiritual pain. But Jesus endured to despise our shame. God himself, who knew no sin, became sin. And once he was on the cross, he dismissed it like it was nothing. It's gone. And that's the way he wants us to view us now. That our our shame is taken care of. He took care of our shame. So we're not going to live in our shame stories anymore. We're going to deal with those things as we go through, but we're not going to stay there. We're not going to live there. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you imagine the joy in that reunion? Psalm sixteen eleven says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. So lastly, on your outline, there is a life changing statement. Jesus did not come primarily to stop us from sinning. He came primarily to give us a new identity so that we could and would stop sinning. Ezekiel 36, 26, Jeremiah 24, 7, Romans 3:24, those are all listed on your outline. These verses talk about God's new heart, or God gives us a new heart, a new spirit. And once we have a new heart, once we've been born again, and we've got our eyes on him, then we can actually make the choice to stop sinning. And So once again, that first question is not whether or not we're focusing on purity tonight, whether or not you sinned or you did not sin. The question is whether or not you, uh, you work the plan. In other words, were you in God's word? Did you catch that life-changing statement? Jesus did not come primarily to stop us from sinning. He came primarily to give us a new identity so that we could and would stop sinning. Listen to this. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender and responsive heart. Jeremiah twenty four seven, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. How does God give us a new heart? Romans three twenty four. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. So what what happens when Christ Jesus forgave the weight and the debt of your sexual sin? What actually happened there? We find that the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. She's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, you're not just a version 2.0 of your old self, right? Jesus Christ has made you a new creation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are actually a new creation that has a new heart that has the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That you can actually live this life free from pornography and free in Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says this, And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. It's the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you The Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised us, that he he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and we glorify him. See, this this is the reason that we praise and glorify God, is that man, he saved us. He saved us from ourselves. He saved us from his own wrath. He has saved us from the evils of pornography. And, and man, we're, we've been adopted into the family of God, where we will live forever and ever and ever. Have you ever talked to an adoptive family? I was thinking about this this morning. To be able to go through all the paperwork, right? To go through the classes, to wait, to have to wait for your adoptive son or daughter. There's a longing there, right? There's an expectation there. There's a joy that these adoptive parents are going to bring into their home. And I started thinking about that this morning. It's the same way. It has to be that God longs for us to be brought into the family, that we would quit trying to do things the way that we've always done before, (laughs) that we would try to do life apart from God, that we would try to find life and love outside of God and apart from Him. And there's a joy to Him when we say, yes, I I want you as my Lord, I want you as my Savior, I must, because there is no other way and there's not. We begin a, a new lesson on temptation, and this is what we call trigger number three, inside the sex spiral. It's interesting, isn't it, that most other recovery books or programs, they actually start with temptation, but what I will teach you is that we actually, we actually passed up two opportunities to exit that spiral before being tempted. We just went through them, being aware, and then going through this unhealthy thoughts stage, our shame stage. See, we had, we had an opportunity there to exit the sex spiral by praying, confessing, and fleeing at both of those triggers. And as we go through this material, you're going to notice that we can, man, we can blow through these triggers in like nanoseconds. It just happens so fast if we're not careful. And, and just like pornography, it, it can pop up on your computer and mobile devices in nanoseconds as well, right? Just when we least expect it, bam. I mean, it's just it's just right there and all of a sudden we get triggered. So Covenant Eyes accountability and filtering software, it will protect you and your family. Every computer, every mobile device, I've been using it for years. Everything is locked down. It's protected. My reports go to my wife and it starts a conversation. So let me encourage you to visit CovenantEyes.com today. And when you do, uh, you can receive a 30-day free trial when you put my full name in the promo box with no spaces. Thank you so much for listening to my name is Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, Hey man, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, divorced, everybody, everybody. If you don't know Jesus, if you're listening to this and, and you don't know Jesus, man, you are so welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night. 7 p.m. Northern Hills Community Church. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. I don't know why it's so hard for me to close out the show. Uh, You can rate the show on iTunes. You can email me your questions at dustindanielsradio.com 1 Corinthians 4.20 The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk, guys. It's not about about living in God's power, and that power is in the very name and the shed blood of Christ Jesus. I love you, and I look forward to our time again tomorrow.
3: Is on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust his sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus'
4: name.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Contend for the Faith-Based on Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
5: Jude was Jesus' brother according to the flesh, though he's humble. He doesn't refer to himself that way. He is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You remember what a bond servant is. A bond servant is somebody who uh, serves not because he has to, but because he loves his master and he wants to. And we are bondservants of Jesus, every one of us, right? And uh, so we want to be at our Father's house. We don't have to be. So I want to start with the first three verses, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, again, that's the bondservant, and brother of James, Uh, he didn't say, and of the Lord, did he? He's humble. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So we are called, we've been chosen by God, we've been elected by God according to the foreknowledge of God. And we are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Right there, I mean, there's your devotion for a week, right? I'm just that one verse to those who are called beloved in God. How does God look at me? As what? Beloved, He loves me, who are kept for Jesus Christ. God keeps me. And this word keep kept is a key word in this little tiny letter because we're kept for Jesus Christ. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God, and so we'll see that as we go through. And then he gives this salutation, me, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. There's our little the triplets that often go together. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, And then he says, hey, I was really excited to write to you. I had this whole thing figured out. I wanted to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about salvation. I was all ready to go. And then it's like the Holy Spirit changed his mind. Something came up to him, and now he's bugged. As I read this, I think these men are men, but there are moments when the Holy Spirit gives them a godly anger. And I think this is one of those times when the Holy Spirit really speaking through, and you know, Jude, as he's writing this, the Holy Spirit is not in a happy mood when he speaks about what is happening with some apostates that are moving into different churches. So he says, but beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, you take notes, and so the word contend would be highlighted, and this word contend is basically, I would say, the reason for the book in one sense. The reason is to help us know that we have got to defend the truth, stand up for the faith. We can't be indifferent to error. Contending. Contending. This form of the word is only used here in the New Testament. So it's a very particular word. It's a very strong word. Uh, It conveys the idea of struggling to overcome something, like wrestling, and you are going to win, okay? You're contending. You're going to win. One Bible commentator shared that this unique word they say pictures a person taking his or her stand on top of something an adversary desires to take away and fighting to defend and retain it. So the adversary, let's say let's say we planted the cross, right? And that's the gospel and that's the truth. And then Satan wants to come and he wants to pull it away. Well, we're gonna fight to keep it there, amen? And so that's the gospel, that's the truth. And Judah's gonna tell us, hey, some people have come in and they are bound hell bound to try to take away the truth and we're not gonna let them do that so it means a continuous struggle so we don't see all this in our English translations that's why Greek was a great uh, language the scriptures to be given in because it's so precise so it, it actually means that we're continue to contend earnestly, which means that struggle wasn't going to stop when the recipients of this letter first read it. So we are still contending, aren't we, for the faith? We're still having to hang on to truth. Now, what is the problem? Look at verse 4. He says the problem is, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Now, the New English Bible, which used to be kind of popular… New English version says, listen, this is great. For certain persons have crept in, wormed their way in, unnoticed. Today, they've crept in, we're told, wormed their way in. We call them today maybe spiritual creepers. Their strategy is stealthy. Usually people with false doctrines, false teachings, they don't come in with the sign, I am a false Shepherd, I'm a wolf. They come in, they creep in. They're stealthy, all right? How will we know who is a creeper? Well, he's going to tell us how you can tell a creeper, all right? A spiritual creeper. They don't work in the open, they really aren't who they appear to be. One Bible scholar points out that crept means to slip in secretly as through a side door. you get the idea then. They're sneaking in. They sneak into the church. Spurgeon said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. Somebody say amen to that because that is true. One devil, quote unquote, in the church can do so much damage. You know, we're all ready for the fight on the outside, so to speak. But when people come in and we get confused and they've built their enmeshed relationships and then the the hand grenade that goes off, what a massacre, right? And that's the way Satan works so often. Now, verse four, latter part, they are people who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. A couple of things here to notice. These people may pervert the grace of God. You know, I'm the biggest grace teacher I know. (laughs) I mean, throughout all the years, grace. And there is grace... The grace of God is great. The grace of God covers everything. But if people are working from the motive of, well, I know you can do this and God's grace will cover it, so it doesn't matter, that is a perversion of God's grace, all right? And so if you're teaching that sensuality, you're teaching, well, I know Friday night, you know, I can go out and I can do my sensual thing. And I know that Sunday morning, I know God's going to forgive me. So, well you are having a problem right there there's something not right not firing right in your spiritual walk that would be very important to realize but the grace of God is huge and so this I wish Satan would leave the grace of God alone don't you just leave it alone let it be great instead of trying to tweak it and use it and pervert the grace of God and they deny who? Our master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's our master, right? And we're his bondservants, the only master and Lord. Do you see that? Our only master and Lord. Now, the purpose of Jude's letter, purpose is always important. The purpose of his letter is to warn the churches of the apostates that are out there. And that's where we look at verses 17 through 19. Let's just drop down and look at 17 through 19. I see the purpose. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be what? Scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause what? divisions worldly people devoid of the spirit I was looking at this and I was thinking of second Peter Peter and Jude you know like kindred spirits that's for sure so they sound about the same as you we've read through the book of Jude and if you read second Peter chapter 2 it's almost the same outline and he said, it, just as you remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, When I think of an apostle, I th- Peter, first of all. So let's look at Second Peter. Just go to the left. And now he, I'm going to say the Holy Spirit is mad. And you're, the Lord is okay with that because the Lord gets angry sometimes, correct? And he gets angry when his people are hurt or when the world is hurt. And I think Peter at this point, it might be like the Holy Spirit of St. Peter, is your quill ready? Because you're going to be writing fast. And there might be steam coming out of this quill as he writes. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 2 because it is one long rant against false teachers. It is a rant. It's what God thinks about false prophets and teachers. But he says, And this is tied into, he says, you remember, beloved, the predictions of our apostles. So he says, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there, what, will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Jude already said they deny the master, right? And many will follow their sensuality. Jude already said they turn the grace of God into what? Sensuality, you know? And then because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. See, it's these false teachers and false prophets that make us look bad, correct? I mean, they do crazy things, and then everybody thinks, oh, that's all of Christians. And many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you with false words their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep and then it talks about how God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment he didn't save the world before the flood he didn't save Sodom and Gomorrah So let's go back to Jude. So the holy apostles of our Lord predicted that these things would happen. And they said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Divisive people have a worldly mindset and the Holy Spirit is not in them. Now, the key idea of the book, we just talked about the purpose then, to warn. The key idea of the book, I think it's found in verse 21. I think it's verse 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. I think that's the whole heart of this book, what protects us from this kind of apostasy and false teaching. It's, It's just keeping ourselves in the love of God. This isn't saying you need the work to make God love you. Keeping yourself in the love of God means here's the sphere of God's love. Stay in it, okay? You don't have to make that sphere or make God put you in it. You're in it. Stay in the place of God's love, okay? Keep yourself in the love of God. Now, he divides this warning into two sections. He talks about, if you like outlines, previous failures of people to keep themselves in the love of God. And he talks about present failures of people who do not keep themselves in the love of God. And he's using, when we're looking at previous cases as illustrations of this, he's going to use three examples and it's, and it's right here, just really easy to see, three examples, and the first illustration is the example of certain Israelites in the wilderness. Look at verse 5. Certain illustrate, Israelites, he says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Let me read it from the New Living Translation. So I want to remind you, although you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. Here's a little side note for you Bible students, is that who was the one on the mount who gave the Ten Commandments? Jesus. I mean, we're told right here, Jesus. A Hebrew says if Jesus had given them rest, they wouldn't, if they would have received his rest, they wouldn't have wandered for 40 years. See, Jesus was the one who said, Moses, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. So Jesus is the one leading the people and the one who pronounces the plague on Egypt, delivers those plagues, it was the Lord Jesus. So he is involved in the salvation of his people. You say well it says God says well Jesus is God okay so he says um, he destroyed those who did not remain faithful one of those instances is found in Numbers 14 let's look at it Numbers chapter 14 after the spies came back uh, they had been delivered from Egypt they go to across the Red Sea Then God's plan was, okay, we're going to go to the promised land. They sent 12 spies in. The spies go. They look around. They see, man, there's huge produce here. There's huge blessing and all. But they also saw there's huge cities that are walled, and there's huge people. There's big people. So there are big obstacles with them going forward. And so 10 of the spies who come back give a bad report. They are freaking out not trusting God, they said, we look like grasshoppers compared to these people. Then Caleb and Joshua, already ready to retire, they said, oh no, it's a beautiful land and we can take it. They had faith that they could go in. Well, because of the bad report of the 10 spies, all of Israel got upset and they didn't believe that God would do what God said he would do. And therefore, they were judged by the Lord. And the Lord said, okay, if you don't think I can bring you into the promised land, then I will bring a different believing nation in. so you guys will wander for 40 years in the wilderness. That's a generation. And after this whole generation dies, the next generation, they'll be believing and they'll go in and I'll take them in. Thus began that 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, that's the background. But... Chapter 14 has an incident that I want you to see about the rebellion of the people and because it said that the Lord judges them, but you got to see the kind of thinking they had. After the, the spies came back, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. What? Verse 3, and why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by our sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Isn't it funny? It's always the leaders who get blamed, right? They were just doing what the Lord told them to do. And the people keep saying, let us what? Return to Egypt. Go back to Egypt. Don't tell God you ever want to go back to your old life, okay? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, Tore their clothes. Joshua and Caleb, they're just grieving. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us back into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not, what? Rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel." And at that point, the Lord says, okay, Mo, just move over. I can get a different people. And Moses intercedes for these people who want to stone him too. And he intercedes and he says, no, Lord, for the sake of your holy name, you've promised, bring them in. Other times, Moses has said, blot my name out and keep them. He's such a great intercessor. And so the Lord pardoned Israel in verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, to Moses' word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them. Who spurned me, see it. So, this is one of those times when the Lord talks about rebellion. And this is the first example of this rebellion against God, of people who would not keep themselves in the love of God. God had this plan for them, they rebel and they're judged. Okay? This is the first example that we get. Psalm 95, verse 7, listen, says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over, the flock under his care. If only you would listen to his voice today. The Lord says, do not harden your hearts as Israel did. For there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw everything I did. For 40 years, I was angry with them, and I said, they are a people whose hearts turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. There is a strong possibility that when we rebel against the Lord, we can mess up our whole lives. That's what happened to these guys. God's plan was Go into the land. Yeah, there'll be some fight involved, but go in, I give it to you. Don't be afraid of them. And instead, they rebel against God and their lives, I would say, are ruined. God took care of them in the wilderness, but they never had all that God promised for them. They had seen the advantage of the mighty work of God in their behalf. They'd seen manna come down, right? Every day, God fed them in the wilderness. They had seen the miracles of God they had even seen the judgments of god when some had challenged the authority of moses and aaron the, the earth had opened up and swallowed them i mean they had seen plenty of miracles to trust god i mean the red sea don't you think that's cool too and all those plagues and judgments and yet they still despise the lord they could you know people could have every benefit you imagine all the signs and wonders And yet not keep themselves in the love of God then there's the example of another group certain angels who do not keep themselves in the love of God let's go way back again to Jude certain Israelites hey and there's certain angels who did not keep themselves in the love of God verse 6 and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling or domain, some translations. Those angels he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That kind of creeps me out, frankly. There are angels that didn't keep their proper abode, and they are so bad that God said they are not free to do anything, and he has them in eternal chains. We don't know how many angels Judah's talking about. Satan, though, we know he's not chained yet. I'm thinking about Satan who was called the anointed cherub. It appears as we look at Ezekiel 28 that he was the most exalted Creation of God he was the anointed cherub that not that it needed to be but guarded the presence of God like the honor guard you might say near the throne of God Ezekiel 28 12 through 17 listen to, to how he's described you were the model of perfection full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. I placed you there with an anointed guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked about the midst of fiery stones. You were blameless in your behavior from the day you were created. God didn't create Satan evil. Until sin was discovered in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I defiled you and banished you from the mountain of God. The guardian cherub expelled you from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom on account of your splendor. I threw you down to the ground. We think that he led, as you take a couple of the Old Testament passages about Satan before his fall, before his rebellion. This is oversimplistic, but like a praise leader in heaven. Only the thing was he didn't need a band. He was the praise band. His voice was instruments, his, his voice was music, an unimaginable way. He was the band, the orchestra, he was all of it. And he became proud, the Bible says, Isaiah 14 talks about it too, he became proud. He saw God on his throne, and he thought, "Well, why can't I be on the throne of God?" Which is ridiculous again, but he became proud. and I cannot say too much. You don't want to say what the Bible doesn't say, but somehow other angels joined him in his rebellion, and uh, he was uh, cast out of heaven. And I think about it, you know how the Lord talks about these angels, these certain angels who are in eternal bonds right now they had experienced the glory of God. They'd been near to the throne of God, but they didn't want to stay in the presence of God. Isn't that that's crazy? Now, what these angels might have done, maybe I shouldn't digress, but their sin may have been what is spoken of in Genesis 6. Fallen angels actually dwelled with... Uh, Earthly women and they had children and those children became the Nephilim which were the giants of old and these angelic beings became like terrorists on the earth and the righteous line Were persecuted because there weren't Noah and his family were the only ones left that had a pure blood and hadn't been defiled by uh, these fallen angels uh, influence in the world quite a study and, and things to think about, but what they did uh, was so gross and so would affect the human race that they were bound, and God will not let them loose to do that again. Third example is certain pagans who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way, Indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. You say, Well, why did you say angels did something like that? Because he says here, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, Angels did something bad and it was what? Just as what? Sodom and Gomorrah, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Angels aren't supposed to have anything to do with human beings. That's strange, okay? That's not part of God's creation plan. So just as Sodom and Gomorrah doing things immoral, involved in sexuality that is not ever God's plan, he said, these in the same way indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh and are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, Maybe this isn't all about just the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's burning God's blessings too because somebody tell me about Sodom and Gomorrah not the sex stuff but what else do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah it was what okay it's destroyed before it was destroyed this is a problem with asking leading questions you know it was beautiful right it's like beautiful gorgeous we've discovered where Sodom and Gomorrah were there's these huge there's deposits of minerals and all that you know show that there was lush plant life there it was a beautiful place i mean it was a place to go remember abraham's nephew lot moved there because abraham said you can choose up here the plains or you can go down to sodom and gomorrah that's just tropical and beautiful well lot went down there So it was beautiful. God gave them every advantage. I'm sure it was a very modern society. They had every certain advantage. They didn't have to work hard, all right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have had time to think up some of the gross things they did. They were prosperous, rich, yet they didn't appreciate the blessings that God gave them. And as a result, they are judged. So, Jude's divided his warning to two sections, previous, represented by three examples. First of all is certain Israelites, right, in the wilderness. Second group are fallen angels. Third group, Gentiles, pagans, Sodom and Gomorrah being an example. And then he looks at some present failures, and I'm not going to take a lot of time but to read the verses, okay? And... I'll comment more on this in the weeks to come. Here's the present failures, verses 8 and onward. He says, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, and he's talking about people that he's writing about. He says, these are the people you have to contend with. He says, these people blaspheme; all they don't understand, and they are destroyed by that. And like unreasoning animals, they understand instinctively. Woe to them. They've walked the way of Cain. We'll talk about that. They've gone the way of Balaam and Korah. And Enoch prophesied about them, verse 14 says. They are grumblers, verse 16, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Well, that's a sermon that you would probably walk out very quietly, wouldn't you, after church? So I want us to see one thing. We want to contend for the faith. We'll wrestle and do whatever it takes to keep the cross planted where it needs to be. That means a doctrine is important. What you believe determines how you will live. People who believe in evolution carried to its reality means that really we are evolving you know what is real morality that is evolved it'll keep evolving and it gives what's my real destiny who is a creator I mean doctrine determines destiny it determines how you're going to live your life what's important what's not important what's valuable am I valuable to God It depends on what I believe and what's been presented to me. Doctrine is important. People have died for the truth, all right? That's how important it is. And Jude writes this little letter saying, I wanted to write you a happy note about our common salvation, but I can't let this go. And the Holy Spirit is telling me it is so important to warn you that in these last days, deceivers are gonna come in, they're gonna creep in, they're gonna look for the back door, they're gonna to try to get inside. One devil in the church is more potent than a thousand outside. That would lead me to think, too, Saints, that we've gotta watch out, we've gotta guard the unity of the faith, right? You're hearing me say that a lot. Guard it, protect it, stand by one another, protect one another, guard each other's backs. That's what it's about in the church. And Jude would stand up and he would say, exactly, church, rally around the truth. Guard it, contend, fight for it, live for it, die for it if necessary. Let's pray. Lord, it is our desire to heed the counsel of our apostle Jude we thank you for your word, for the encouragement it's brought to us. And wow, we pay attention to these warnings as we think about all the advantages Israel had and the advantages the holy angels who f- left, fell, and evil now had, and, and how even these pagans in Sodom and Gomorrah had all the advantages. But having all those advantages doesn't matter unless our hearts are desiring the truth. We wanna live for your purpose. We don't want our lives to be so messed up because we rebelled against what you would have for us. So Lord, we trust you, we place our faith in you, and we wanna stand with you, living by the truth, contending for the truth, and if necessary, dying for the truth. That is our prayer, our desire through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen.
0: This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.